Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 129, Disaster and Depression. First, as always, I want to thank our newest backers and patrons. There are, we've had some generous donations from Aaron Smith and Daniel Mayram, and we have new patrons, Vencislav Minev, Dave Watson, Vladimir Ileksov, Christel Kondov, and Dmitry Sabponjiev. I hope I got that right. Thank you so much to all of you. And for the rest of you, you know, pledge if you can. I understand these are hard times. Uh, no worries if you can't. Even if you want to just send send an email and say say what you like or don't like about the, the podcast. I always love getting those and they can be very helpful. Now, before we get into it, just a warning. This episode is not nearly as sad as the uh, episode title would make you think. So don't worry about that. Now let's get into it. Last time, we covered everything about the BRCC up to that vital year of 1872 and into early 1873. The organization met to resolve differences between its two factions in Romania and Bulgaria. And while that meeting was largely successful, subsequent events changed everything, as a highway robbery led to many BRCC members being captured, eventually leading to the capture and execution of Vasil Levski himself. Now, the BRCC organization in Bulgaria has been gutted, losing many of its members and leaving many of those who remain in fear of the Ottoman authorities as never before. The question is whether the organization can now recover from these losses. Now, in the episode before that, which I think we have to mention because they covered kind of the same period, we saw the Ottoman reforms of the Tanzimat begin to draw down as the new Bulgarian exarchate finally gained an exarch. Antim I. He was also excommunicated as the Bulgarian church was formally separated from the patriarchate on ten of their order, leaving it with opportunities and dangers that come along with this greater freedom and independence. So that's where we begin today, in early 1873, with the BRCC decimated and the Bulgarian church newly independent. But before we delve back into the Balkans, there are some global events occurring this year which will come to affect Bulgaria in the wider region, and it's important to understand what those are all about. So, as we know, the world has been getting smaller for decades at this point. We've talked about how technologies like railroad and steam power have transformed transportation, but another way in which this early stage of globalization was occurring was, of course, in economics. Bulgaria and the wider Ottoman Empire had been flooded with manufactured goods from the rest of Europe for decades up to this point, integrating them somewhat into the increasingly global economic system, while also, in a way, relegating them to a loser status in that system because, in general, they were producing low-value kind of commodity products while importing high-value products, which, in terms of kind of macroeconomics, means you're not really getting the best deal out of that kind of trade. You're still benefiting because you still have access to those products and, and access to those markets, but you're, you're not the ones really benefiting. As a result of this new global financial system, the Ottoman government has been borrowing ever-increasing amount of money from international creditors, mostly British and French, for over a decade at this point. Now, it was around this point that the U.S., 
began to finally experience a kind of financial panic for reasons that aren't worth exploring in too much detail, but are connected to an investment bubble tied to the railroad industry and some new monetary policies about the global price of silver. We don't need to get into that, but what you need to know is 1873, the U.S. starts to experience a financial panic. And this series of financial problems and panics in the U.S. kind of quickly swept across the world economy and soon reached the Ottoman Empire in Bulgaria, really showing just how far globalization has now come. Obviously, for the vast majority of this podcast, you know, anything going on in the U.S. is not really affecting Bulgaria, but here it is very directly. Ironically enough, many of the same forces that were bringing economic ruin to Europe as newly independent Germany experienced a very similar set of economic problems, those were kind of the same forces that affected the U.S., an economic bubble and new silver monetary policy. So kind of Germany and the U.S. are experiencing a lot of the same economic problems at the same time. And all this led to a series of economic crashes in 1873, which again reverberated throughout the world. In the Ottoman Empire, it worsened the state's reliance on foreign debt, both because revenues declined and the empire's creditors were no longer as flush with cash to lend. And so, yeah, the Ottomans couldn't borrow as easily. Now, without access to funds, the Sultan's authority definitely took an immediate hit, right? If you don't have as much money to give out to projects and things, it's harder to make people like and respect you and do what they're supposed to. And remember, this comes in the broader context of sultans whose authority has been declining for decades as it is. But in this moment, without the ability to borrow more money, you might imagine the Ottoman government would try to, I don't know, cut spending. But you would be wrong. Instead, the central government instructed its regional governments to simply collect more taxes. Now, for everyday people in places like Bulgaria, all of this was disastrous. Foreign trade sharply declined alongside agricultural prices. So, you know, traders, uh, that side of the economy was declining. But for farmers, they also suffered immediate economic harm as they couldn't get as much money for their products. Just to add a, a, a nice layer of additional hardship on all of this, increased tax collection put a burden on nearly everyone from the farmers to those traders and everyone in between. To top it all off, a series of natural disasters, including drought in Anatolia, locusts in Cyprus, and the worst winter in nearly a century, meant that food became so scarce in Bulgaria that the government banned wheat from being exported. In response, peasants hoarded food, and this resulted in starvation in cities and towns across the region. As Misha Glenny writes, quote, Hundreds of dead bodies lay on the streets of Istanbul as wolves moved into the outskirts of the capital, preying on the inhabitants. Tens of thousands died of hypothermia and starvation, while the extreme flooding which followed the hard winter ensured that the famine continued well into the spring. By this time, 90% of livestock reserves in Anatolia and the southern Balkans had been slaughtered, leading to disruption in supplies for several years. End quote. In particular, there was a devastating late frost in the Struma Valley, which dramatically harmed farmers there in early 1874. So all of this is happening kind of in 1873, leading into early 1874. And as you can imagine, right, this is hurting Bulgaria very substantially. You have urban Bulgarians facing hunger, while rural ones face very bad crop yields and the ability to sell a lot of their crops, alongside low prices for those, those that they could sell. And... 
Of course, as they mentioned, they lost most of their livestock, needing to slaughter it for food, or I guess to sell, you know, some combination of those two things. So what does this mean for our friends, the BRCC? Well, in my estimation, it's a bit of a blessing and a curse. Sure, as we'll see, the crisis of 1873 led to a sharp decline in satisfaction with the Ottoman government and the power of the Ottoman government. But it also meant that money, supplies, and time that the BRCC needed to prepare for an uprising would all be in short supply. Remember we talked before about how Levski and his friends were already having a difficult time in gathering the money that they needed to fund their operations. And obviously with this economic crisis, that's going to become much more difficult. Now, in March of 1873, before anyone in the world really knew that these market crashes were months away, the BRCC called for an assembly in Bucharest, led by Luban Karavelov, to decide on the next steps following all the disasters that the organization had faced in the previous months with the mass arrests and the death of Levski. When they gathered, representatives from six different committees decided on new aliases and that another common assembly should be held in Bucharest. In other words, while some, as we know, had been calling to accelerate the uprising in light of Levski's death, it seemed that the BRCC was going to take its time. You know, this initial meeting wasn't, okay, we need to start immediately, but okay, let's, let's take a few actions and set a time for another meeting. Meanwhile, that spring, Paniot Hitov toured Wallachia, Bessarabia, and southern Russia, spreading word of the BRCC and its activities amongst Bulgarian emigres. While seeking help from foreign governments had always been controversial, this is clearly a more agreeable way to seek some support from those Bulgarians abroad. Well, one more substantial decision that was made by the BRCC in the spring was to name Atanas Uzonov, quote, Deputy Apostle. Now, this is an odd title, but remember, Levski had received the title of Apostle as a kind of vague but powerful title which would give him a lot of, you know, clout but also flexibility in his activities. So in effect, Uzonov was now kind of the deputy head of the BRCC within Bulgaria. Now at the end of April, Uzonov arrived in Khaskovo, where the local BRCC held a meeting where it decided that a local man named Stavri Primo should be murdered. Primo was a strong Grecophile and was suspected of working with the Ottoman authorities against the BRCC. So, on the 4th of May, Uzonov went to Primo's home and shot him three times wounding him before being subdued by his servants before he could escape. So, Uzonov was now captured and was now immediately handed over to the Ottoman authorities. So, while it had taken months for the previous BRCC disaster to kind of unfold involving Levski and Obshti, this case began to unravel within mere days. Uzonov's interrogation began the next day, and although he did not give up any information— uh, the police did still quickly arrest and interrogate other suspected BRCC members in the coming days, and overall were able to obtain enough information to tie the BRCC to the attempted murder of Primo. Now, while that investigation was underway, the next BRCC assembly occurred in mid-May. Paniotkitov gave a report on his tour, and they confirmed the plan to revolt in Bulgaria as soon as possible, as well as to continue negotiations with Serbia in the meantime. The assembly also decided to remove their previous set of internal rules, and lastly, for a cheta to be sent into Bulgaria to kind of gauge the mood and the readiness of the population for the coming revolt. So, 
Obviously, the BRCC were still determined to lead an uprising ASAP, but they were also attempting to get a better feel for local conditions before they did so. So they're moving quickly, but being a little cautious at least. Meanwhile, by June, the repeated interrogations of Uzonov by the Ottoman police finally bore fruit, as they managed to get him to confirm both his identity and his participation in the BRCC. Within a week or two, they were able to begin another series of arrests based on that information, capturing numerous other local BRCC members. Ultimately, 20 of these members from Khaskovo, Starozagora, Chirpan, and Plovdiv would be arrested in this sweep. All those arrested were then sent to Plovdiv, where a three-member investigative committee was formed, similar to the one which had prosecuted Levski and Sofia a few months earlier. One of the interrogations of the Khaskovo teacher Mircho Popov informed the Ottomans that the BRCC was indeed planning a major revolt. Incidentally, Popov and his wife had actually hosted the original meeting of the Khaskovo BRCC committee, where they had decided to assassinate Savri Primo in the first place. By the end of June, the investigators completed their work and wrote a final report on the Khaskovo conspiracy. At the end of August, the municipal port court in Adrianople accepted the recommendations and suggested that the arrested BRCC members be exiled, with the exception of Uzonov himself, who would receive his own punishment. Ultimately, it took until December for the High Court in Constantinople to finalize these punishments. All 22 BRCC members who were arrested were exiled to deep southeastern Anatolia, kind of near Syria. Uzonov was also sent there, but was additionally sentenced to 15 years of hard labor in a mine instead of simply being exiled, as he was the attempted murderer and not simply a conspirator. The men were all shipped off in the first days of 1874, although within a year at least one, Stoyan Zaimov, escaped back to Ruse and resumed working with the BRCC. So, with the end of 1873, the BRCC had faced its second catastrophe in as many years, further crippling the organization and giving the Ottomans a very good idea of its activities and plans. Coupled with the emerging effects of the global economic crisis, things simply did not look good for the organization going into 1874. Still, there were some positive events during the year. In the summer, the rail line from Constantinople to Sofia and beyond eventually, reached what is now the, temp- the town of Setembri, which was a very positive development. I mean, you know, Bulgaria is getting more rail lines, but construction halted there, unable to cross the foothills of the Rila Mountains to complete the last 90 kilometers, it's about 55 miles, of the train to Sofia. And this would take many, many years, so yeah, things kind of ground to a halt. In the meantime, travelers would need to take a coach through the famous Trajan's Gate in order to complete their journey. Now, summarizing what many thought of these developments, uh, the historian Marcus Scholler quoted an Austrian official named Franz Stoltz writing of the railway, quote, Indeed, the Orient will and must become occidentalized. The Turks shall not be chased away. They will turn themselves slowly into Europeans. That they are able to do this is proven by the European attire, which becomes ever more widespread and is already worn by many. And this victory of the Occident over the Orient will be decided when the first train from Vienna will roaringly enter the station at the Golden Horn. That's in Constantinople. Due to this railway, a flood of Occidental people, attitudes, and ideas will pour over the Orient and spread wide and far. 
the Asiatic, the barbarous element in the Turk will disappear, and he will show to be capable of receiving civilization and education, end quote. So apologies for the very heavy-handed racism in that, um, but I think that quote gets us a deeper idea of the process of Europeanization, which has defined much of the modern Ottoman, Turkish, and indeed Bulgarian history, and particularly kind of how you know great powers viewed these uh, organizational efforts, and even everyday citizens. In face of these attitudes, the question is, you know, how can or should Bulgarians or Turks quote-unquote modernize? That's a larger discussion we'll get into later, but it's something to keep in mind as the backlash of the Tanzimat reforms continue and Bulgarians and Ottomans alike debate what a future independent state might be for Bulgaria and kind of what just the future of those regions might be and those people might be. How should they modernize? You know, should they go more towards religion? Should they go more towards Europe? All these questions are being discussed. Now, on a lighter note for the year, 1873 saw the completion of the St. St. Constantine and Elena Church in Tornovo by Colio Ficetto, who is perhaps the most famous architect of the revival period. I think I really like my wife's description of him. She called him the Cristo Botaf of Bridges. Uh, it gave me a laugh, but it gives you an idea of his importance. Now, to get a sense of his output, just looking on Wikipedia, they list over 25 major works, including many bridges, bell towers, churches, inns, and factories all around Bulgaria. So he's completed you know, one of his kind of masterworks, and, well, obviously he thinks that this church is very important because he will decide to be buried there. But if you travel around Bulgaria or plan to when that's possible, you can also see his work, I think most famously, in the covered bridge of Lovich, which is a major landmark, and, well, it seems just about every major church in Velikotornovo was built by him or rebuilt after an earthquake on the same spot. Now, Ilya Bluskov also published the first in a series of books about the classic character of Bulgarian and Macedonian folklore named Hitor Petar, aka Crafty Peter. Now, this is a classic character from a kind of poor peasant background who's known for outwitting the authorities, be they wealthy Chorbajis or Ottoman officials. It's a small but important contribution to a sense of Bulgarian national identity because this allows more people to identify with this character and his defining traits, which are often seen as classical Bulgarian traits, being kind of maybe poor but pretty crafty and wily and resourceful, in contrast to those of the Ottomans. So, you know, it's just a, a you know book being published, but I think it's worth bringing up because it is helping to contribute to a gradual Bulgarian sense of who Bulgarians are, as opposed to the other, the Ottomans. Now, to finish off the year, I have to mention the formation of the Three Emperors League. In late October, as the effects of the looming economic depression were beginning to be felt, an initial agreement was finalized between the emperors of Germany, Russia, and Austria-Hungary. This league was in many ways a return to the Holy Alliance against Napoleon and the liberal revolutions which had happened a half century ago. And really the goals were just about the same, maintaining the balance of power and protecting conservative values by combating the ever-growing tides of liberalism in Europe. But it was also about Otto von Habsburg keeping Russia and Austria-Hungary close to prevent them from allying against Germany. To placate them, all three powers agreed to suppress the Poles. Remember, those three powers had joined together to basically dismember Poland a long time ago. And to divide the Balkans between Russian and Austria-Hungarian kind of spheres of influence, 
with Russia getting the Eastern Balkans and Austria-Hungary getting the West. Now, obviously this puts Bulgaria squarely in the Russian orbit, but, well, that's been a status quo for some time, as we've discussed. But while this may seem like a simple agreement, the geopolitical realities were far more complex. Misha Glenny writes that, quote, Germany regarded the Balkans as a necessary conduit for the establishment of its imperial aims in the Middle East. Any further fragmentation of the region would complicate its ambitions and run the risk of provoking a larger conflagration. Britain was still utterly committed to the status quo in order to keep Russian hands off his thumble, and it did not really matter what defeated France thought. End quote. So that gives you some idea of what Germany thinks about the Balkans and how the kind of geopolitics of Bulgarian independence might play out. But these three powers, although they just formed this alliance, it's important to note they had very different aims in the Balkans. As we just noted, Prussia wanted the status quo, which would enable it to expand its influence through the Ottoman Empire and into the Middle East. But Russia wanted to expand there by weakening the Ottomans in order to gain access to Constantinople and the Straits, while Austria-Hungary was internally divided between Austrians who wished to expand there and, and you know kind of expand more into the Balkans and Hungarians who were very, very concerned about bringing any more Slavs into the empire and kind of upsetting the balance of power within the empire. Quick side note also this year, the Hungarians finally formed the city of Budapest, where Buda and Pest finally joined together. Side note over. Now, as the Russian consul in Constantinople, Ignatiev explained, quote, sooner or later, Russia must fight Austria-Hungary for the first place in the Balkans and for leadership of Slavdom. Only for the attainment of this task should Russia make sacrifices for the Slavs under Austrian and Turkish rule and be solicitous for their freedom and growth in strength. To aim merely at emancipating the Slavs, to be satisfied with merely humanitarian success would be foolish and reprehensible. End quote. Now, I think that is a very, very telling quote. And again, when we think about Bulgaria seeking Russian support, I think that's a pretty good kind of idea of the Russian position. You know, Russia will support Bulgarian aims for independence only insofar as those aims further the Russian aim at kind of obtaining some hegemony over the Balkans and the straits around Constantinople. So, yeah, the, so, you know, Russian support mm, is a possibility, but it's very, very conditional. There's a substantial asterisk there. Now, all that is to say, there was now a formal alliance between these three empires, but they remained very much rivals in the Balkans. This state of affairs is going to have profound consequences for Bulgaria, but for now, it wasn't exactly clear how all this would affect the goals of the BRCC. Would the Holy Alliance allow Russia to convince its allies to allow an independent Bulgarian state under its influence? Or would German and Austro-Hungarian concerns about Russia moving closer to Constantinople prevent them from allowing this to happen? Again, we won't know for some time, but for now, the work of nation-building and revolution-building continued. Fortunately for the BRCC, 1874 would be a much quieter year than the previous two. In August, they had another assembly in Bucharest, voting for a temporary central committee of Lubin Karavelov, Kiryak Tsankov, Olympi Panov, Todor Peev, and Hristo Botev. The Ruse committee was tasked with reviving the committee structure within Bulgaria, after all it had really taken a beating over the last two years. 
They met again in the final days of the year to develop a more concrete plan for future actions, but the focus of this meeting was drawn away from that goal towards a fight between Lubin Karavelov and Hristo Botev. They were fighting about the rights of the chairman of the committee, with Botev essentially accusing Karavelov of moving towards a singular leadership of the BRCC and kind of taking it over personally. A committee was appointed to prepare a new assembly for the 1st of March 1875. After this assembly, Karavelov stepped back from active participation in the BRCC. He would shift his focus to publishing for the time being and even finish a novella called Mama's Boy that same year. However, there's no denying that rather than looking stronger than ever as it prepares an uprising which would attempt to free Bulgaria, the BRCC was falling prey to Ottoman intrigues and its own infighting. But at least the Bulgarian exarchate was relatively united in its goals and activities at this point. On the 3rd of May 1874, the Synod of the Bulgarian Exarchate sent a letter to all municipal centers in Bulgaria to demand that they help the Bulgarian population, which was still not educated, by gathering funds every six months to assist poor schools, particularly Bulgarian schools in Macedonia. It was remarked that to leave their countrymen without help, who have dared to fight a kind of fight back against Grecophile propaganda would be unforgivable and could have fatal consequences for Bulgarian nationhood. So, in essence, it's interesting to see the Exarchate take a very deliberate role in nation building. Very focused, very deliberate, and we're in this kind of, we're just starting to see the first kind of beginning rumblings of a more concerted Macedonian issue, as we'll discuss in great detail as we go along. But it did seem that Bulgarian nationhood was fairly strong because that same year, elections were held in several bishoprics to decide whether they would stay with the Patriarchate or join the Bulgarian Exarchate. Christians of the bishoprics of Skopje and Ohrid voted 91 and 97% respectively to join the Bulgarian Exarchate. This was a resounding victory. It was no doubt a major victory for the young church by expanding its authority and showing it had strong popular support as opposed to the Patriarchate, which all these folks were voting to leave. Now, all that popular support, that uh, national sentiment, that's going to be needed very dearly in the coming years. As 1875 dawned, the world was experiencing severe economic pain. The Ottoman government was in chaos as the end of the Tanzimat and the challenges of funding its activities combined to make it weaker than ever. The BRCC was continuing its preparations for a major uprising, and the great powers of Europe were attempting to create a more unified and stable policy towards the Balkans. Next time, we'll see how all these forces come together as Bulgarians finally begin a more concerted attempt to free themselves from Ottoman domination. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. Check out the Bulgarian language version of the podcast currently on hold because of COVID, but Check out the episodes we have at bghistorypodcast.com and the subreddit to the podcast, which uh, not much is happening there, but we hope to get to it soon, is linked in the episode description. And I'll catch you next time.